Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 to 28. And uh, you can tell it's a long passage because the font is a lot smaller to try to squeeze it in. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 to 28. This is the word of the Lord. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord ha was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it, is, and it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did, not, uh, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. You know, I don't wear glasses. I'm wondering if maybe I uh, should get my eyes checked. That was a little difficult for me to read. Um, let's pray together. <coughs> Lord, we thank you just for this time, and we pray that you would speak to us. Um, more than anything, God, we need to hear from you, and you give us your word as a way to clearly speak. And so uh, we know that by your spirit, 
your desire is to speak and uh, press um, what we need to do is we need to hear and listen and we know we rely upon uh, the power of the Holy Spirit to help us to hear and to see and to listen to things that you have to say to us so would you uh, give us ears to hear eyes to see what the Spirit has to say today in Christ's name we pray amen you know, this is a hard passage. You know, we're going through a series in the book of Hebrews, and uh, what we're doing is we're calling this series Jesus is Better. Uh, Hebrews is not a very easy book to understand, and it has some very deep and complex theology. And uh, I'm going to repeat an illustration I used a few weeks ago, but I think sometimes if you want to engage and enjoy things, you have to engage with the depth of things and the complexity of things in order to realize that it is actually really much better. Uh, if you're not someone who understands, uh, I guess, the complexity of like wine tasting, if you're a wine drinker, uh, or if you're not a wine drinker, you may not be able to tell the difference between a bottle that's like $10 and a bottle that's $100. And I don't, I guess there's probably bottles that are like $1,000, but uh, tell the difference between all these different kinds of qualities of wine. But if you are someone who can kind of understand the complexity of wine, if you're someone who, you know, you, you do the swirling thing and then you do the smelling thing uh, and then you taste it, you know, if you understand, if you have the palate, if you train yourself to have the palate to understand the complexity of the different notes, then you probably enjoy wine better and you go, oh, this is a much more sophisticated wine. This is amazing, right? Others of you, maybe you think that's a little bit elitist, so you don't do that. <laughs> but if you want to enjoy Christ, I think you have to have an exercise sometimes in going into the depth of who Christ is. Sometimes you have to get into the depth of a little bit more complex theology, and uh, what we're going to do today, I think, is we're going to swirl the wine a little bit. We're going to try to smell the subtle notes and say, uh, what kind of wood barrel was this aged in? Or um, I think there's chocolate notes. My wife says there isn't. But I think, you know, you smell chocolate, if not chocolate, whatever you smell in wine. Uh, this passage is not easy to understand, but it is very rich and it is very deep. And at the same time, I think the message is pretty simple. So if you get lost in the depth of the complexity of it, go back to the simplicity of the message. And the message is this. Jesus is a better priest, okay? Jesus is a better priest. Now, depending on the kind of Christian tradition that you grew up in, I think maybe many of you, if you did grow up in the church, probably grew up in a Protestant tradition, but some of you may have grown up in a Catholic church or in a Catholic tradition. Uh, if you grew up in a Catholic church, uh, a pastor to you, you probably called a priest, and I imagine uh, one of the reasons why a pastor was called a priest in the Catholic Church is because one of the roles of a priest is to mediate on behalf of the people. That's why you go to a priest to confess your sins in the Catholic tradition. Uh, I don't know if this is the, actually it's probably not the practice of the modern Catholic Church, but I remember uh, our, uh, our recently on sabbatical elder who's also uh, an academic person finishing up his PhD in church history. Uh, I remember once he said to me that in the Catholic Church, what used to happen is the Catholic priest would sing on behalf of the congregation, and the congregation wouldn't sing. And what Martin, Martin Luther, the reformer, introduced was congregational singing. And he said it's not up to clergy to represent the people on behalf of God and sing on behalf of God, but because of the priesthood of all believers, because we all have access to God, uh, all, everybody in the congregation should sing, should sing. So it's interesting if you wonder, like, you know, some people may be uncomfortable with singing here in a worship service. Uh, many of you, it's just kind of the norm. But why do we sing, right? Why does the congregation sing? Part of it's influenced by theology because we all have access to God and we don't need uh, the role of a human mediator or a human priest because Jesus Christ is that perfect mediator on our behalf. Now, <coughs> 
why do we need a priest in the first place? Or let me ask it a little bit differently. Why do we need an intercessor? Why do we need somebody to intercede on behalf of the people? And I think unless you can answer, unless you can really answer that question or understand that question deep in your heart, I don't think Jesus or the message of the gospel will ever be something that is truly meaningful to you. Uh, outside of a religious context, uh, you may not have a priest, but I do think we have priest-like figures even outside of a religious context. We have people who do act as an intercessor or as an advocate. So, for example, a labor union is always going to have uh, going to try to intercede on behalf of the laborers or employees to ensure fair wages and fair benefits. Uh, maybe an agent, a sports agent or uh, whatever kind of agent intercedes on behalf of their client. If you ever get into legal trouble, it is recommended that you hire an attorney to represent you in court. Why? Because the basic assumption is you are probably not qualified to rep represent yourself in all matters. I remember my first experience where I went to court. I was pulled over and I got a ticket. I got a speeding ticket. And I didn't uh, think I deserved that speeding ticket. The reason why I didn't think I deserved that speeding ticket, uh, the ticket was go for going 70 miles per hour in a 55 mile per hour zone. But I was actually driving in a 65 mile per hour zone. So I went to court. I was going to fight this. And I, you go to court to fight a speeding ticket. First, uh, I think you meet with a prosecutor. And they want to know, are you going to plead guilty or not guilty? And I wasn't sure how to answer, right? I was like, well, I guess technically I was speeding because I was going five miles per hour this over the speed limit. But you know, at the same time, nobody gets a speeding ticket for going only five miles per hour over. And so I didn't really think I, was, I deserved the ticket. Uh, so was I guilty or was I not guilty? I wasn't really sure how to respond. And I was like trying to explain myself and like, just answer the question, right? Are you gonna plead guilty or not guilty? That's all they wanna know. Now, attorneys, I think, who are familiar with the law and court proceedings and so forth are probably in a much better position to represent you, right? Because they know how the law works. They know how the court system works. They know how things get done and dealt with in terms of the justice system. Why do you need an intercessor to speak on your behalf? At the end of the day, it's because you are not qualified to represent yourself. Similarly, we need an intercessor before God because at the end of the day, we don't have the qualifications to present our case before God. We are not qualified to represent ourselves. God would say, why should you receive, be received into the kingdom and, and receive this glorious inheritance and the glories of the heavenly places? Well, we could say, well, God, you know, I tried to be a decent person in life. I didn't kill anybody. You know, I tried to donate as much money as I could to charity. And if you're a believer, maybe you add something like this. Well, God, I did try to serve the church. Uh, I know a lot of Bible. I tried to pray. Uh, you know, I tried to talk about Jesus with uh, people who didn't know Jesus as often as I could. And you can ask yourself, if you're before God, look at your life, and do you think you have enough to really present a case before God to say, God, receive me. I am worthy. I deserve uh, to be received into your kingdom. Are you righteous enough for him to overlook your sin, your anger, your lust, your selfishness, your greed, your unwillingness to sacrifice for others? I submit to you, I think the answer is no. We are probably not qualified to do that, and that's why we need a better intercessor. Jesus is that better intercessor, but the question is, why is he a better intercessor? Why is he a better priest? And the quick answer is, Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. All right, here's where we're swirling the wine a little bit, okay? <coughs> uh, unless you know who Melchizedek is, and unless you know why the author is even mentioning him or bringing him up, 
then I guess that won't mean that much to you. So let's take a closer look as into this figure, Melchizedek. Melchizedek is kind of a mysterious figure in the Bible. He's only mentioned twice in the Old Testament. He's mentioned in Genesis chapter 14, and he is mentioned in Psalm 110. Now in Genesis chapter 14, he's only mentioned for three verses, and he's mentioned in the story of Abraham. Abraham finds himself in the middle of a war between like all these kings, right? So there's these king alliances on the east, and there's these other king alliances, and he finds himself in the middle of that war. In the midst of that war, Abraham's nephew Lot gets captured, and so Abraham goes to battle with 318 trained men. He executes the sneak attack at night. He defeats the powerful alliance of these eastern kings. And after that, right, after that happens, this mysterious figure named Melchizedek seems to come out of nowhere. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And in response, what Abraham does for Melchizedek is he offers him a tithe. Okay? That's what Genesis 14 has to say about Melchizedek. Now, the author of Hebrews picks up on those Three verses, that little story right there about Melchizedek, and he makes a point about Jesus. What is that point? The point is Jesus is a better high priest. Why? Well, you have to understand the mindset of a Jewish person. This is primarily a Jewish Christian audience, and they were in danger of falling away. Falling away in that context for them meant to revert back to their old life and their old ways, their old religion, their old faith, going back to Judaism. And so a Jewish person would understand that if you're a priest, you have to come after the order of Aaron. You have to come out of the tribe of Levi. L Levi, the tribe of Levi, was the tribe of the priests. And so a Jewish person is thinking, well, Jesus doesn't come from Levi. Jesus comes from Judah. So therefore, how can Jesus even be a priest, let alone a better priest? And the response of the author of Hebrews is Jesus is a better priest because he doesn't come after the order of Levi. He comes after the order of Melchizedek. Now, why is Melchizedek a better order? Why is he a better priest? There's a couple reasons. First, he's not just a priest, but he's also a king, right? He's a king of Salem. Second, Abraham gives a tithe to Melchizedek. Abraham, who is Abraham? He is the great patriarch of the Jewish people, of the people of Israel. He precedes those 12 tribes. He precedes Levi. And according to verse 10, Levi is still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. If Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek is the one who blesses Abraham, what it means is this. Abraham is actually inferior to Melchizedek. So even though you may not appreciate this, unless you're a Jewish person, the author is basically saying this. You hold somebody like Abraham in such high regard, and yet Melchizedek is superior to him because Melchizedek is the one who blessed him. Let me illustrate this. You know, in different fields, I think there are always people who are revered. You hear a name and you're like, oh, that person is so great at what they do. In sports, it might be a coach. In fashion, maybe it's a designer. In finance, maybe it's a very successful investor. For me, it might be this uh, theologian. And, uh, <coughs> uh, you know, the people that we revere likely will have trained other people. And uh, the people that they train in association with that person uh, their status kind of goes up, right? And you kind of say, oh, this person is, has to be good at what they do because they were trained under uh, this other person. And you kind of have like this lineage established. Uh, there's this documentary about the sushi, sushi chef named Jiro. And uh, he is this world-famous sushi chef. That's hard to say for me for some reason. He's a world-famous sushi chef and possibly uh, the best sushi, I'm going to say sushi person, probably the best sushi person in the entire world. And I think people want to apprentice under him and learn under him and learn how to make sushi, but 
if you hear the stories of people who learn under him, it's, it's an incredibly <laughs> difficult process to, to be trained under him. Uh, I think there's this one apprentice that was saying he spent 10 years learning how to make rice, right, in order to meet Jiro's standard. Imagine that, working 10 years trying to perfect how to make rice for sushi. Now, one of the people that Jiro trained opened up a restaurant in New York. I am sure some of you actually know this restaurant and have been there. It's a place called Sushi Nakazawa. And you expect this place to be really good. And it probably gets, uh, at least initially, got a positive reputation because this guy uh, learned and apprenticed under this guy named Jiro. Now, Nakazawa will probably train other people in this restaurant in New York. And I'm sure that lineage continues. Everyone is thinking these chefs are going to be good because they descend from Jiro. That's a little bit how the Jews may have thought about Abraham. And even though Abraham wasn't a priest, he was the great patriarch that eventually birthed the tribe of the priests, the Levites. And so, you know, what if there was somebody that you found out uh, actually trained Jiro himself? The master himself taught him everything about fish, taught him everything about rice and wasabi and how to mash those things together. I'm sure I'm insulting his, uh, his craft, but right, how to put those things together and make the perfect sushi. Wouldn't you regard that person in higher regard? Maybe that person's not well known for various reasons. Maybe that person didn't open up a famous restaurant. Maybe there was no media attention, no documentary about this person, no three Michelin stars about this person, but still this is the person that you may not have heard of who trained Jiro and gave him all the skills required to become the kind of sushi chef he is. What would you think about that person? You would say, oh, this person must be great. This person must, must be superior. That's what Hebrews is doing with this guy Melchizedek, right? Mentioned only in three verses in the book of Genesis. Hardly mentioned at all, but saying, look, this priest, this king of Salem, right? This Melchizedek, he is the one who blessed Abraham, and therefore he is superior to Abraham. You know where Jesus comes from? You know what his lineage is, his priestly lineage? It doesn't come from Levi. It comes from this guy named Melchizedek. Now, why is that significant? Verse 11 implies something important, and it says perfection cannot be attained through the Levitical priesthood. The law is something that cannot attain perfection. In other words, as good as Jiro can be as a sushi chef, he will never be perfect. And that can be frustrating, right? Isn't that one of the main reasons why we get frustrated? Uh, if you're a parent, uh, you know, the kids were exceptionally noisy today, and I'm sure many parents were, like, wondering, uh, like, why can't my child just, like, stay still and be quiet and sit down? And, you know, we want them to be perfect in worship service too, right? And when they don't act in a way that we want them to act, it's frustrating. We expect perfection. If you are a perfectionist type of personality, my guess is uh, you probably did actually pretty well in life because being a perfectionist, I think, helps you right, do high-quality work. But at the same time, I'm going to guess you probably get frustrated a lot because uh, in the world that we live in, perfection is not something that is easily attainable. Um, <coughs> you know, I don't know if this is an only child or oldest child thing, but uh, I see my oldest child turning out to be a little bit of a perfectionist. And uh, when she makes a mistake or loses a game or breaks her Legos, or even if she gets in trouble, uh, she gets really upset, and, you know, my wife and I try to tell her, uh, you know, you're a child. You're supposed to make spills. You're supposed to break things. You're supposed to get in trouble. It's not big, a big deal. Just learn from it and move on. But she, she just gets so frustrated, and we kind of have to be like, chill out, right? You're not perfect, and you shouldn't expect 
uh, to be perfect all the time. Uh, as a student, uh, I always found mathematics to be somewhat satisfying, although I'm not good at math, and even now, less so. But I think one of the reasons why I found mathematics to be satisfying is perfection is kind of, at least in like, you know, middle school and high school math, perfection is somewhat achievable. As long as you answer the math problem correctly, or if you use the right kind of proofs, uh, you can get a perfect score in your exam, and everything on that exam can be perfect. Uh, if the problem says, what's two plus two, there's a perfect answer. The perfect answer is four. But you know, other areas of study are not quite like that. Um, when I was in college, I ended up majoring in history. And as a history major, what you do is you write a lot of papers. And the problem with writing papers is you can actually never achieve perfection in writing a paper. There is no such thing as the perfect paper. You can write a, write a really good paper. Uh, that paper can even get an A. You can even get some acclaim in that paper. But there's always going to be reason to critique that paper. Someone's going to think, well, your thesis is wrong, or the support for it is wrong, or the writing style is too dry, or your word choice is poor, or the sentences are too repetitive. Right? There are probably a hundred, <coughs> if not thousands of reasons why someone would have a critique on the paper. So uh, at least for me, every time I submit a paper, I never felt this paper is perfect. I only felt this paper is good enough to hand in. But I never felt it was perfect, and when I got the paper back, it never said, this is a perfect paper. There's all these red marks, sentences crossed out. There's all these comments uh, noting how things can be approved. Now, if you expect perfection, let's say in the area of writing, it's going to be really frustrating, right? Because perfection is not possible. You know, one of the reasons why the law and the Levitical priesthood could potentially be a source of frustration is not that the law is bad or that the priesthood is bad. In fact, these are good things. But the law, as it says in Hebrews, can never achieve perfection. A priest could not offer the perfect sacrifice that would perfectly atone for our sin. Not only that, there was no such thing as a perfect priest by virtue of being a human being. A priest not only has their own sin that they have to give sacrifices and atone for, but, you know, priests have health issues too. They're human, right? So a typical priest would retire at the age of 50. You know why a priest would retire at the age of 50? Because their eyesight would go bad. And these are the days before bifocals or glasses. Well, why does a priest need to be able to see? Because one of the jobs of the priest is to determine and identify whether someone has leprosy or any kind of other ailments that made them ceremonially unclean under Jewish law. And if they couldn't see, then they couldn't do their job. So these Levitical priests were imperfect by the virtue of the fact that their health would eventually decline, eventually they would die, and they wouldn't be able to continue to intercede on behalf of the people. So what would have to happen is more priests would be have to raise up. Uh, they would replace the ones that died. But those priests would eventually die, and you kind of have this cycle of priest after priest after priest after priest. Do you know why Jesus is uh, a much better and perfect priest? He always lives. He doesn't die. That's what it says in verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. One of the reasons why Jesus is a better intercessor is because he always lives. And because he always lives, he never stops interceding for us on our behalf. He will never stop making intercession. You see, so the law is not bad. It had a purpose. It revealed the will and the character of God. But at the same time, it could not achieve perfection. It could not make us perfect. It could not make us acceptable before a perfect God. 
the most uh, lawfully obedient Jewish person could not come before God and say, God, I am perfect. A priest could not say to you, I am perfect, and therefore I can make you perfect as well. Get me this lamb, get me this goat, let me take care of this sin problem for you. A priest could never do that. The law could never do that. And that was never meant to be the ultimate solution to our imperfection, to our sin. In fact, that is probably the source of our frustration with sin. No matter how hard you work at obedience, you will never be good enough. And that's why what we need at the end of the day is a gospel message, not a legal message, not a moral message. You know, in my years of ministry, I've met uh, you know, a lot of different types of people, I think, who really struggle with this. And generally, there are probably two types of people. There's going to be the first type who's you know, kind of the judgmental type. Uh, they look at others and they're frustrated with other people because they're not doing what they're supposed to do. Um, and if they're a Christian, then they get frustrated because uh, they say, well, you're a Christian and you should be like this. You should be living like this. They look at them and they say, uh, why aren't you going to these Bible studies? Why aren't you going to these prayer meetings? Why aren't you tithing? Why aren't you volunteering to serve? Why aren't you doing X, Y, and Z? This person is a Christian. Uh, I saw this person get angry with their spouse or their kids and do all these things. Uh, I, I saw this person, uh, I don't know, in a club, and I saw them doing something that they're not Why is this person doing this? They're a Christian, right? And you have the kind of a judgmental type and saying, they should know better. This person should be perfect. But then there's another type of person, and I think maybe this is where a lot of uh, people would fall under, is uh, you ex kind of expect and demand perfection from yourself, and when you don't achieve it, when you don't reach it, uh, you judge yourself. Uh, you say, uh, as a student, ah, why can't I get straight A's? Ah, why can't I have a certain kind of body? Ah, why can't I create a certain kind of life? Why can't I have a certain kind of success in my career? And again, Right? If you're a Christian, then you might say, ah, why can't I pray and read scripture more consistently? Uh, why do I keep giving in to my lustful desires of the flesh? And so you expect perfection from yourself, and when you don't see it, you condemn yourself and you judge yourself. But you see, that's why the law is ultimately insufficient, because when you feel that, when you feel that and expect that, you will never reach that or attain that. There is no perfection. There is no perfection of others. There is no perfection from yourself because we are a sinful people. Every part of us is affected by sin. And even your most sincere efforts to perfectly obey will still never be good enough. If you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, everybody has a standard of living, right? Uh, even if you don't believe in the moral standards of the Bible, uh, any time a person says uh, should will usually imply that they have a, a moral standard. So if you say a person should never objectify another person, a person should never say anything racist, a person should never uh, be deceptive, a person should always help the poor, a person should always, right? You say all these things, and then you kind of ask yourself, those should statements, have you kept them to perfection? throughout your entire life? Most likely not. And therefore, right, we're all in the same boat. We're not perfect. And if we're not perfect, do you know what we need? We need a perfect intercessor to make things perfect for us. This passage says Jesus is that perfect intercessor who makes us perfect through his intercession. Look at verses uh, 26 and 27 with me. It says this, For it was indeed fitting 
that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. You know what this is saying? Uh, it's making a contrast between right, these Levitical priests and saying Jesus is the better and most high and most perfect priest. He didn't have to make sacrifices daily. He didn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sin and then for the sins of his people. He had to offer one perfect sacrifice one time, which he did when he offered himself on the cross. He was a perfect priest who subsequently uh, didn't make a sacrifice from the blood of goats and bulls, but he was a perfect priest who offered himself as a perfect lamb of God, presented this sacrifice before God, and perfectly interceded on our behalf and made an air, uh, an open and shut airtight case in our defense so that we can draw near to a God who is perfect, to a God who is holy, and to a God who is righteous, even in spite of our imperfection. That is why Jesus is a better high priest. Do you know him as your high priest? If you do, I think it transforms how you view God and it transforms how you view yourself even. You know, I heard this, uh, I, I thought it was a really great illustration uh, that comes from Tim Keller. And uh, he says this, you know, he says when he was younger, uh, the way he would always conceive of God would be kind of like um, uh, Jesus, as our intercessor, would have like this file about all the things that he did bad, and he would kind of bring it to God, and he'd say, oh, you know, I know, uh, Tim, I know Tim Keller, and uh, I know he messed up again. Right? I know he did this wrong again. Oh, please, just give him one more chance. And then God would say, all right, fine, right? Jesus, because you want me to give him one more chance, I'll give him one more chance. And then uh, he would sin again, and then Jesus would come before God again and say, oh, can you just give him another chance? And that's how he conceived of God uh, for, the, for, for a very long time in his life. But then he realized at one point, that's not what it means when it says that Jesus is our perfect intercessor, that he is our perfect priest who offers himself once for all. Rather, what it says is this. What Jesus does is he says, God, on the basis of your righteous justice and your righteous character, receive this person. Because I am presenting to you a perfect sa sacrifice. I am presenting you the perfect argument, so to speak. I am satisfying your wrath and your justice for sin so that you can no longer hold it against them. And because of that, the assurance that we have in terms of our relationship with God is not something that's like kind of based on chance or based on like, oh, please God, please God. It is based on something much deeper, much more firm. It is based on the very blood of Jesus Christ. He presents airtight case for us as our perfect intercessor. That's why Hebrews says, draw near to God, right? Not like, oh, God, are you going to accept me? Draw near to God with boldness, confidence. Even though you're not perfect, because you have one who was perfect, and who perfectly died on your behalf. Do you know Jesus as your intercessor? Or are you still condemning other people? 
and condemning yourself because you aren't perfect or they aren't perfect. Trust in Jesus. Trust that he can represent you better than you can represent yourself and trust that he has done that and accomplished that through the cross. Let's pray together.